2: John Milton pensions. Normally, it's property, but today pensions. You know how the weekend papers are normally jammed full of misery, right? You read yes. the stories and you think, God, this is awful. This week, our uh, our competitor friend Claire Barrett wrote a piece about a man called Martin, and I cannot get Martin out of my head. I can't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Martin is coming up to retirement. It's not funny, by the way, John. Actually, this is not a funny story. The way you
3: phrase it. The way you phrase it. It's not a funny
2: story. (laughs) Martin, one day he looks at his pension pot. He sees he's got 200 grand in it. Looks at it again. not bad. Yep. Looks at it again a year or so later. 134,000. Maybe 135. Can't remember exactly. One. Uh. Yeah. This guy is running out of retirement. One third of his pension money is gone.
3: Yeah, that's kind of nasty. Was he uh, Was he invested in some dodgy tech stock or something like... Uh, yeah, or a crypto cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency
2: or something like that. Had he maybe gone OTT on buy-to-let properties no one wanted to mm. rent? No, no, no. What Martin had done is left his money with one of the UK's big pension fund managers. Yeah. And they had moved it because he was coming up to retirement and they were running a strategy called lifestyling whereby mm. you're defaulted into what they call a lifestyle fund. And in your younger years, you're in mainly equities because that's high risk. Yep. And then yep. as you get older, and my, my pension fund does this, by the way, and, and yours probably does too. As you mm. get older, they lifestyle you into something low risk, really, 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 really <laughs> low risk, but nothing can possibly go wrong. <laughs> and he was being lifestyled into, from, from um, what I can see, a... A bond fund that held mainly guilts. Mm. And he was in it at exactly the wrong time. This is particularly relevant because of the guest we have coming up, by the way. Um, <laughs> when the guilt market went slightly ballistic and that fund lost 50%. I mean,
3: that is, that is awful. Um, and it's also obviously it's extra awful because you think I'm investing in government bonds therefore those are safe you know these are the things that are always described as safe and I'm assuming those must have been pretty long term bonds to have lost that amount of money
2: I'm assuming Um, so yeah
3: Um,
2: anyway Um, either way he was in something safe he lost a pile of money um, and he does not obviously have time if he's running up to retirement to mm. sit around and as you say they're long dated bonds he's not going to sit around and wait for 30 years to get get that money back it's gone
3: should we explain to people why this gets done and why in the days now that you don't have to buy an annuity, it's a complete anachronism and Good. it's somewhat deranged that the financial system has not got around to changing the yeah. way that it does things?
2: Good idea, John. Why don't you do that?
3: All <laughs> well, right. So in the old days when you had to buy an annuity and what was interesting when you look at the comments under Claire's piece a lot of people say this without actually realising they're talking rubbish but it's like the defined benefit pension schemes and how they were using LDI is this idea that because the the interest rate goes up so the price of the bond goes down But the annuity that you can buy with your diminished pot of capital is actually basically the same or roughly the same because at 1%, 200 grand will buy you a very small annuity. Whereas if interest rates go up to 5%, then 130 grand will buy you something like the same annuity or maybe even a slightly better one. Mm -hmm. The problem, though, is that our pensions don't work like that anymore. Uh, You don't have to buy an annuity whenever you retire or the minute that you retire at age 65 or what it what it used to be um, and so now most days or, or more people just draw down their pensions and so being shifted 100% into bonds at any given moment in time no longer makes the same sort of sense that it used to whenever you essentially had to crystallize whatever was in your pot and use that to buy an income at a given point in time
2: yep very well so, explained, gorgeously explained. Does that
3: work? Yes. Does that work? Good. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but the things, that changed ages ago. It so changed it's kinda ages weird. ago
2: and they're, they're yeah, the, still putting people into these yeah. default lifestyling funds. And the key is default, I think, in that hmm. because people get put into this default, they could get something else, they could choose something else, but there's a default. They're not obliged to engage at the beginning of the process right? Yeah. So they don't understand the process, so they don't know that this could be a really bad idea.
3: Yeah. And also, but I suppose other thing things people don't check their funds probably often enough because, no. I mean, my heart, you know, goes out to Martin and I, I, I don't think he's unusual. But clearly at some point between 200 and 130, there were points at which the fund was... You know, you'd have looked at that pot and gone, Wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, I don't think that happened inside a month. Um, so it's that thing of being aware yeah. of what you're yeah. in. Yeah. Um, so I
2: was thinking about exactly what should be done about this. What should people do? And obviously the first thing is to get onto the website of your your pension provider. And obviously most of these websites are absolutely useless and it might tell you nothing at all. But it might give you a clue. I mean, I did this again with this very small pension that I have with um Aviva, I think you might have one of those too, John. Mm-hmm. Worth checking. Yes. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the default there is one of these. And yeah. it will start 10 years before retirement. It will start lifestyling me. Right? And I couldn't I couldn't find anywhere where it told me when my expected retirement date is. But I found somewhere <laughs> where you can change your expected retirement date. And I was thinking about what should the lazy person do right now? Obviously, the proactive person should go in and look at what they've got, think about it carefully, and possibly shift to another fund if they're being lifestyled yeah. and they don't want to be lifestyled. Some people may want to be lifestyled. That's fine. If you don't want to be lifestyled, you can shift into a fund, maybe designed for a younger person, something like that. But if you're really lazy, you can do what I've just done and go onto the Pension Fund <laughs> website and change your retirement date to 75. That I mean, way, That's
3: a good idea. Yeah.
2: Now they're not going to start lifestyling me until I'm 65 and I have delayed that admin for years. <laughs>
3: That is a really clever piece of arbitrage. I like that.
2: Thank you very much. Personal finance tip of the week. There you go. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset-Webb. This week, we bring you a conversation with former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng. Now, he's obviously was chancellor for a short period of time. He had many positions in government before that, but also relevant to our conversation is the fact that he has a PhD in economic history and has written a variety of very interesting books, including War and Gold, which I'm working my way through at the moment and strongly recommend, and also one that has been discussed quite a lot over the last few years that he co-wrote with a variety of other MPs, Britannia, Unchanged Global Lessons for Growth and Prosperity. And if you haven't read that one, again, I would suggest it.
1: I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters.
0: It's an election year, so...
1: You can listen to the Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We're gonna have to start with your time as Chancellor. This is incredibly interesting. Now I don't want to go to go On about what went wrong, particularly although we might a little. Why not? Um, I think we can we can assume that what happened here was that you had uh, great policies. Well, a lot of people would say great policies, but a lot of the things that were done were far too fast and without particular reference to how the markets would react.
4: Is that fair? Yeah, I think it was. I think the speed was was what was uh, at fault, really. I think it was far too fast, far too much. Mm, mm. I mean, I think we. I took office on the sixth of September. The budget, the so called mini budget. Uh, the statement was on the twenty-third, and of course we'd had, you know, the passing of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth the in between. So it was a very febrile atmosphere, and I think it was it, it, we t- we took it too fast. And even at the time, I was reticent. Was that we discussed spending plans? In fact, I think Simon Clark, who then became the Leveling Up Minister and has been in the papers recently, uh, calling for Rishi Sunak's removal, which I don't agree with. But Simon. Uh, publicly said that we were, all through the leadership campaign, we were looking at spending restraint and savings. And I think looking back, and even at the time, I thought it would be a, a better idea to present the tax cuts with some spending restraint.
2: Because there so, were a lot of tax cuts, and that was a were. lot up front, taking so, away 45p, so the, the, corporation the, yeah, tax, expansion was
4: 45 billion yeah. on the scorecard, and of course, that was on top of the energy intervention. Which was scored at about sixty, and I think, understandably, markets were concerned. Got concerned. Looking back, and we discussed it at the time. I think the expansion should have been less than forty-five billion if we'd stuck to what Liz Truss had campaigned on, namely the um, not increasing corporation tax from nineteen percent and also getting rid of the NI. That was scored at thirty-five billion, and along with the thirty-five billion, we should have we should have presented some uh, savings. Now these aren't cuts. Uh, the slow, uh, the reductions in the rate of growth. For mathematicians out there, it's the first order; it goes down. So that means that spending isn't going up as fast as you had anticipated. It's still going up, but instead of let's say two uh, or three percent a year, we were trying uh, to restrain that growth to something like one percent a year. I the think idea that was being the
2: subs- to get GDP growing faster than spending. That's right? right.
4: That's right. Because the I mean, it's a very simple equation. But if you're public spending is going faster uh, than your GDP, or certainly your tax take, that just means the state gets larger and larger as a proportion of GDP. And I think that has an adverse uh, effect on growth.
2: Mm. Interesting. I think, let's just pick up why that has a terrible effect on growth. I mean, we know that, or I feel that we know that instinctively, right, that so right. the bigger the state do, gets, the, right. the worse the private sector performs. But why, why is that? How does that So be? I think
4: that the, the problem that you've had over essentially the 20th century, is that you've had states that have grown bigger in terms of spending. But a lot of that wasn't uh, deliberate. I mean, if you think of the events of the 20th century, you had two world wars, and they massively increased spending. Arguably, COVID was another situation, almost like an emergency war-type situation, where the state was expected to spend huge amounts of money in very short order, short time. And that essentially, because it ratchets up debt, it ratchets up um, taxes, because you have to pay for the spending. It does crowd out private sector investments. And that is a limit in itself as a limit Imposes a cap on growth.
2: Yeah. So the bond market. One thing that that you discovered that many yeah, sure. many people in governments around the world have discovered over the years is that bond market is slightly nuts, incredibly powerful. That's right. And uh, slightly irrational in that. Uh, yes. You know, it, it it accepted all that massive boost in spending That's during right. COVID without, literally without blinking an eye. Um, That's right. But then looked at your policies and went slightly. slightly and it mad. freaked
4: out. And I said, you know, I said oh, in the future we, we'd, we'd already said that we were going to have a statement on spending, mm. but because when I said, oh, um, you know, we, in the future we want to reduce taxes, then people went nuts as well. The markets went nuts. But I think my, my main lesson is that you have to do things. You have to prepare the pitch. You have to do things more deliberately. I think there was a real urgency to get things done. I remember the prime minister said, oh, hey, well, I've only got two years. And I thought, well, if we carry on like this, you'll have two months. I said that to her after the mini budget. And I think that you know, it's always a case of slow and steady wins the race, I think, in terms of government policy. Because you're trying to move when you're in government, especially with very large economies, it's like trying to move a super tanker. You know, it takes time yeah. to turn corners, it takes time to get that sort of acceleration and momentum that you need. And I think to try and expect to do things very quickly, I think it does add to the risk, certainly.
2: Although it does slightly feel if you think that we've been moving in the wrong direction on growth for, for decades. For a long time. And that you have a relatively, or could be a relatively short period to turn things around. Maybe you do need to move faster. I mean, if you look back at, you know, decades worth of people going on and on, and on right. about how we must have growth, but not setting an environment that will give you growth. And politicians relentlessly talk about how we're going to, we're going to create growth. That's but of right. course, you can't create growth, or I don't think, you can create no. growth. All you can do is create the conditions That's exactly in which right. growth can happen, right? So, you can set up a, a, an acceptable, uncomplicated, and reasonably low tax system. That's right. You can have a very good education system, which, of course, we have done done well at in much of the UK. That's uh, right. You can set up a, a legal system that everyone trusts. That's right. You can have an infrastructure that, that works, a system sense. that works, all these things. That's all you can do, as far as I can see. And then you just get out of the way. But we've had successive governments who have been unable to produce that environment and absolutely, unable to get out of the way
4: so the problem that I think we have in, in Britain and it's all across the West it's not just a British problem is that um, governments have a very short-term focus um, and also with the chops and changes you, you keep switching one keeps switching so you know if you look at something very simple like capital allowances the amount that we were we were giving people uh, in terms of capital allowances businesses kept changing every year so it was very difficult to plan in those circumstances I think you're right to say that time is short, but you know, I was thinking we had the autumn statement and we would have had a budget in spring. And that would have been six months in which we could have set the parameters that you're talking about. Obviously, for longer term growth, you need to have much more stability. And one of the places I looked at, and I'm still very interested in, is Ireland. And if you look at their corporation tax policy, that's been, I think they've set that in about 99. So nearly a quarter of a century, they've had exactly the same corporation tax rate, regardless of who was in power. That's a, a really good model of how you can set conditions, um, regardless of who gets in uh, for for growth. The example, the British example of that, I think, is when Nigel Lawson set the top rate of tax in 1986, I think it was, or 87, at 40%. Now, that lasted 20 years. And that was a very good, again, quite permanent, uh, so it seemed at the time, uh, tax policy that everyone understood, and that sent a very uh, good signal. I think where things start going wrong is when you keep chopping and changing, you know, increasing rates here, uh, reducing them there uh, on, a, on well, a kind of continual it's cycle. It's also when
2: you make it very complicated, isn't it? That's because right. Because the more complicated you make taxes, the more stressed that's, people are about I, them. I take agree And one that. of my big bugbears is um, is inheritance tax. I'm not alone in that, that's obviously. True. But if you think about the amount of stress that inheritance tax causes older people yeah. because they believe that it is possible to avoid it. That's right. You? So they think about it And there are lots of loopholes. The yeah, and and loopholes there are lots
4: of exist, loopholes. But those
2: loopholes mainly exist for the very rich. Yeah, that's right. So if you, you buy a forest away, or you, you buy a, a farm, farm or, yeah that's forest, right, all of whatever that. but if you're a a middling sort of person right. with with one house and an uh, yeah, income that you right. need to live on uh, you feel it, stressed by the idea that you could avoid it yes and that you have kind of haven't
4: So you're right so I think the simplicity of taxation it's something which we've got badly wrong in the UK. I know we had an office of tax simplification, but Doesn't re- really work. It, it was hopeless. Office? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was there for, been there for years and it didn't really do anything. And I think there's a, there's a lot of political will that's mm. involved that mm. is needed. Um, but that's something again, that if I obviously had longer, I was something that I was, that was something I was going to look at and I was very interested in.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. What you would have done if you'd had sure. longer. So, spending was coming next. Yes. Where would spending has been, as you say, so not cut, but cut in real terms? Where would we have seen so those not spending even kind of, it's, it's
4: All I'm saying is that the increase, um, you know, needed to be reduced. The rate of change, yeah. even though it was going up, that needed to be slowed down. But it
2: would probably have been a real terms cut, don't um, you think? If, we, if you could have pushed growth to, say, 2%, two, two well, on percent inflation up around there, the inflation. going up by 1%, 2%, etcetera. It depends on what the
4: inflation... Uh, is you know it yeah. depends what the inflation yeah but nonetheless which, what
2: is it that government does that government could not do or so could i think do the, less of? so
4: i think what you i mean it sounds like an old cliche but what you have to do is try and i think cut across in the round i think w- what we've done in the past is we've rung fe- ring fenced things uh, and the things we ring fence can sort of get favored status mm-hmm. and are mm-hmm. less likely to find efficiencies because they know that they're going to get the money regardless and then the other departments have been have been cut very severely as a consequence of other de- you know the first departments being ring-, ring fenced I think what you have to do is look at uh, an overall and this is what essentially what jeremy hunt has done i mean post twenty uh the election, what the Tories are committed to is a one percent increase in public spending in the round, and I think that 's probably a better approach than having sort of favored children, if you like, or favored uh, departments being ring-fenced and then others having to bear the brunt of public expenditure cuts or restraint.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm still going to push you on this slightly yeah, sure. just because, you know, there is there is often talk about uh, particularly on this podcast actually sure. about how the government does too much how it extends now into every part of every life every yeah. everything that you do is, is somehow influenced by the government are there areas where state spending can actually go where the government can be Made smaller, you know. Um, you're a small state person, so this is very And you're also a balanced budget person. Yeah, yeah In yeah. the end, you know. Um. Uh. By the way, listeners, you must read uh, Quasi's uh "War and
4: Gold." That's right. Which is
2: excellent. And Thank a lot you. of that is about how you know balance, budgets must be balanced. I think I am balanced. a balanced you,
4: budget yeah, person. I only you you know, you said you can't too. run a
2: constant deficit. No. You run deficits in wars, and then That's you sort right. them out afterwards. That's you know, right. the last time that debt in in the UK was this high, you know, 100 of GDP, etc., two point five trillion. That's what are we? What are we on? Thirty eight grand a person. You know, the last time debt was anywhere near this high as a percentage GDP, it was on the way down, that's right. not on the way up. That's exactly right? right. So, if we want to get back to anything like that, we have to say the that role the government plays right. is too big. It has so, to get smaller.
4: So, you will know that if you ask a politician, where are we going to cut the spending and yeah, they say it's something. It's impossible for anyone that's to That's a huge, um, you know, political... Sort of football political fight that you set up. And that, and I think was why Liz Truss was reluctant to go down that route, even though, but I think thing, you know, just so, so tentatively, I think that, um, areas where the public spending has gone up through the roof, for example, the NHS, there's got to be a more efficient way of delivering top line services than simply, you know, funding, uh, without any accountability, um, things like uh the nhs and the specific i mean you know salaries of 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 workers and i'm not talking about nurses i'm talking about very high end people managers you know there're lots and lots of managers if you look at local government again there's lots and lots of bureaucracy and it's very unclear how that bureaucracy is actually delivering on the front line so there's a whole sort of administrative and services budget around different departments that in the last few years has gone through the roof, and that's why I'm really impressed with the Prime Minister in the the attitude he took to the strikes and public spending, because that you ha- we have to show restraint um, in terms of salaries. And I'm not talking about people on you know earning lower incomes. I'm like talking people, people at, the at, the the high, at the top, and that's seen massive, uh, uh, huge increases. Which, if restrained, I think can have savings and will lead to, to again, as I say, a slowing down of the increase.
2: Yeah. It's a bit the NHS, it's a bit oh, I was going to say it's a bit like the post office, but isn't quite what I mean. But in no. terms of, of the way that we have these huge organizations that are technically owned by the state and technically right. owned by the taxpayer. But there is no no way of them being accountable to a b- directors okay. in the same way as a company. So you know we used to worry in the old days about managerial capitalism, about That's the right. CEO of a big company having full control over that company because the right. actual owners of the company most so uh, diverse and widespread that it was impossible for them to have any control or indeed any any interest in how a company would would work. So we used to worry endlessly about one man being in charge of one big company. Now we don't worry about that anymore. We worry about money manager capitalism. We worry about the um, big shareholders having too much power. But things like the scandal of the post office and the difficulties of the NHS kind of bring my mind back to this idea of how dangerous it can be to have a large organization that has managers who are not really accountable to any particular.
4: So that was very the, that was the issue. People. This is one of the big issues of the British state. I mean, I was before I was Chancellor. um You will know I was Secretary of State for Business, uh, Enterprise, which was called Business Energy Industrial Strategy yeah. Bayes. No one actually knew what Bayes stood for, but it was Business Energy Industrial uh, Strategy, and it's been split up into three departments. Now, as Secretary of State for Bayes, I was responsible for forty three. I remember counting them, and I knew them all uh, at the time, 43 organizations, uh, including the post office. Um, and I was essentially, um, ultimately going to hire people to run those organizations. But there were 43 of them, you know, from the Met Office, uh, to the Post Office, uh, to, you know, British Nuclear.
2: Uh, yeah, it's just too much.
4: Yeah, uh, you know, the competition authorities, uh, the CAA was the Department of Transport, but I had 43 of these. And it was very difficult to see, um, you know, the grocery is adjudicator mm-hmm. or, or, uh, and it was very difficult to see how transparent these organizations were because you've got a department, you've got a, one secretary of state and you've got 43. Of these organizations. That was just one department. You know, the transport secretary would have maybe 20 or 25 such organizations. And all of these organizations have a, a corporate structure. They all have people, um, you know, experienced people, uh, running them. But it's very difficult to see the oversight. And, and most people wouldn't know who they, who they are, even though they wield in their own, uh, domain huge amounts of authority. They get big salaries.
2: Yeah. Well, we um, always wondered during the pandemic, um, uh, one person you very rarely heard on the radio was the person actually in charge of the NHS.
4: That's right. That's right. Exactly. And that was I mean, I was never in the health department, but that's a huge I mean, if you could imagine, you know, Secretary of State for Bayes and about and 43 organ arm's length organ bodies they were called. Um you've got uh the health secretary with this huge beer moth called mm. the NHS, which mm. is I think the biggest employer in the world practically after the Indian. The world second, Way, maybe, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Um and it's very difficult to see or know a what levers to pull and who are the actual people who are the, the decision makers in that organisation are and that's a huge problem and that's something which i think most ordinary voters are not aware of even though these organisations have huge bearing yeah on and people's are effectively lives.
2: independent yeah,
4: yeah. They're, they're and that's and how you manage that i think is very difficult because re, these organisations have grown uh, immeasurably in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and they're more and more powerful, but they're less and less accountable. And that's a big problem.
2: Okay. Now, lots of problems here, which we can't solve, I'm afraid, today. But <laughs> there is one person who can solve problems, has the power to solve problems right now, who's Rishi Sunak, right? Mm. Now, he has a, a limited amount of time left. I'm not going to ask you to agree with me on this, but he's quite clearly not going to win another election. So he's got this period of time in which he really has nothing to lose politically. Sure. And if you were Rishi, and you were sitting there today thinking, look, I've got this certain amount of time, and I have the ability to do something that may be incredibly unpopular, may be very difficult, but could be the right thing to do for the nation going forward, and whether it makes me popular or unpopular is, is by the by at this point, mm. so I can do it. What well, what might it be, do you think? So
4: I think you're right. I think in a way, he's 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 quite liberated, yeah, because be nobody's expecting liberated. him mm. to win and all he needs to do is really just do what he believes in
2: yeah so what would be the gift to think, the nation
4: i think i think the tax burden is something which he has to look at i'd be amazed if after the budget this year we don't see some tax cuts because essentially if they don't uh, cut taxes um, I think you're essentially running on the same program as the Labour Party. But
2: it'll be nitpicky, won't it? I mean, we. I don't could, know. I mean, it could be quite,
4: quite radical. The,
2: the wholesale reform of the whole thing. He combined. He could have done that. I mean, he's had a he year. Exactly. VAT, he's he had did, a whole
4: uh, year to plan that. And, and, and who knows? Maybe they've been working behind the scenes to reform our tax uh, code. I doubt it. Um, I think it'll be, as you say, a bit sort of nitpicky and piecemeal, but we don't know that.
2: What about uh, what about net zero? Could he give the mm. nation a gift by making that le- less strict, well, taking the law a, or something like that?
4: I think reversing the legislation is going to be very difficult. He has indicated a pivot away from uh, net zero in the sense that you know the 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 um, the 2030 uh, deadline on imbu- uh, internal combustion engines um, that's been shifted out, I think, to 2035. Uh, he's very much toned down the rhetoric on on net zero. Um, I think oil and gas licenses are coming back which I think is good because to ban them is insane because you're just going to simply rely on foreign oil and gas. I That's what's going weird, to happen. but we
2: still use oil and gas we are going to do for decades to come right. possibly so, forever. So
4: so not so to say that you're not going to produce it in your country but you're going to import it from wherever else not it, it, it increases the cost and reduces the security. So I don't understand why anyone would want to do that and it's good that he's he's faced down in a way, the, the, the more extreme green lobby on that. So he's done some things. But, but you I think, don't
2: think the legislation is reversible? Because it has an impact on everything, doesn't it? We were talking earlier yeah, about I, infrastructure and the difficulties so I, I of think, that. I
4: think that would be... So, so, so if you look at the net zero legislation, and I was responsible for some of it, certainly it's, you know, following it in base. It's actually attracted a lot of capital So if you think, look at the offshore wind uh, auctions, you look at the renewables developments. I mean, obviously, we had this check last year when they didn't. I mean, that was a disaster, frankly. And I think it was ministers and officials dropped the ball on that. But generally, we've been very successful in driving investment, inward investment, into new technologies. And I think to reverse the legislation, would be a very bad signal for those investors. And so I don't see that happening, as well as a whole political headache with yeah, people who, yeah. for whom it's very important. But, but there within is disagreement the framework
2: about it for the for you know, a couple of years ago there was no disagreement about That's whether that zero is a good thing or not. Now there's definitely So there's there's some, about there's some there's some
4: there's some water, you know, clear blue water, whatever you want to call it, between the two parties on this issue, which hadn't been the case. I mean from I think the original um, climate change act was two thousand and eight. And really, from 2008 until pretty much last year, there was quite a degree of consensus between Conservative and Labour on the net zero agenda. From my point of view, I think that was probably a good thing, because as I have said, we had legislation, we managed to set up uh, CFDs and other structures that really crowded in private sector investment. And we saw huge amounts of investments, particularly in offshore wind, where we were the leading nation in the world. I think China overtook us about 18 months ago, but we were the leading nation until that point in terms of the uh, rollout uh, installation of offshore wind uh, infrastructure. So now, I think for political reasons, probably, uh, Rishi Sunak has decided that we shouldn't go too fast in that direction. And I think he's probably right. I think people Uh, have a feeling, particularly when energy prices were very high last year and at the end of the year before that, um, that we shouldn't be sacrificing today's consumer for a hypothetical target, you know, in 30 years' time.
2: Yeah. And we Uh, also can't go much further without a massive overhaul of the grid, which is insanely expensive. That's right. And And, people are going to feel a little less good about net zero when the pylons go up in their back gardens.
4: That's all right. So it has to be coordinated. And the other thing, that I think is most important. If you look at the global picture in terms of global um, warming, global uh, climate change, other countries have to be aligned. doesn't make sense for us to reach net zero and for every other country to be miles behind. That's not going to help the climate. We're 1%, I think, of the global economy uh, and a lot uh, smaller proportion of the, of the global population. Um, so it doesn't make sense for us uh, to uh, simply uh, try and, and force through a net zero, without regard to other countries, so it has to be a global coalition, and that's where. Um, but, but again, it's a delicate situation because in order to coordinate or help coordinate a global response, we need to show that we're we're leaders, and I think we're doing that. And I think you know, if you look at the amount of uh, carbon that we've reduced, the carbon emissions that we've reduced since 1990, which is the base year, we've actually done a, a, a reasonable job. I think it's something like 50 percent. we're we're emitting 50% less carbon. People will say, well, you've gone a
2: long way down the road already. Yeah, we have. And going
4: any further might be difficult for us. So, so you know, if you look at where we were, the base year is 1990, which is 34 years ago. Mm. We've actually made quite a lot of progress. um, And we don't need to wear the hair shirt and beat ourselves up, particularly if other countries aren't aren't following.
2: Okay, so... What is going? If if you were Rishi and you had mm. these few months in hand, what would be your partial gift to the nation? So I think tax is a big. I definitely think tax, tax is a big. I think tax is a big. If you could abolish a tax completely, uh, because we have a lot of taxes that that create a lot of friction yeah, I mean, in our business world in our in our so personal worlds etc what what would go the tax that I was you?
4: I don't think they've got enough time for this yeah But the tax that really irritated me as not only as a, as a as a finance minister but also as a constituency mp was business rates i mean business rates have been around for about 500 years and you know they completely discriminate against physical um, shops physical uh, units as against the internet uh, shopping um, and they're a big revenue raiser for uh, the Treasury. And I think that some form of reform of business rates is something that will happen. I'm not sure whether Rishi is working on that. I don't know what his thoughts on it are. But that seems to be unfair. And of course, the other um, tax which is particularly galling for families is inheritance tax and the annoying thing about that is that it hits people particularly in the southeast who may have a a a, a principal home that's worth i don't know 3 quarters of a million pounds yeah. they are affected by business uh, uh, sorry inheritance, inheritance tax. tax not business rates inheritance tax and Obviously, people who are a lot wealthier, can they escape that? Mm, there mm. are lots of loopholes. You can buy farms. You can buy um, uh, uh, forests. Yeah. There are lots of ways of avoiding... Yeah.
2: Aim stocks, etc. Uh, but, stocks. I mean, you, you could solve that by getting rid of inheritance tax, but turning it into a gift tax so that it, it's paid by the person who receives the money.
4: Yeah, you could do and that. I mean, I I mean there are lots be, of that things... That would be rather mm-hmm. easier. There are <laughs> lots... And, and actually, the problem that we have with our tax system is that it's almost like a christmas tree that's accrued lots and lots of different mm. things over mm. the years yeah, and we wouldn't haven't taken you start from here it, you wouldn't <laughs> no, sell you from wouldn't. here no you wouldn't you wouldn't start from here at all and you know and 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 people are very reluctant because the treasury you know they're very interested in, in revenue raising if, if you if you try and change taxes that can have an adverse effect on your revenue and so there's a real reluctance an inbuilt reluctance to see any reform on that
2: yeah yeah, and there's always a lobby group to push back on everything.
4: Always, always, always.
2: always. Um, now, speaking of, uh, mm. Bank of England. Mm. Now, there w- there was discussion when, when, uh, when you were Chancellor and, and Liz was Prime Minister, possibly about talking about the independence of the Bank of England, given their um, appalling performance during the pandemic and the uh, inflationary sure. incident. Now, they... Uh, Would you say the Bank of England was responsible to a degree for the inflation that we? Yeah, look, I think they were quite slow. And and
4: actually, to be honest with you, they did two things. Not only did the governor say that you know we were a bit behind the curve on this, they've got Bernanke to do an independent sort of investigation of just how awful their models as to what went wrong. So, so if you're not going to bring in an American Nobel Prize-winning economist, if everything you felt that you'd done everything right, Mm. Mm. Um, so they've they've kind of admitted more or less uh, that they were a bit slow. In terms of the interest rate um, increases, I think gu- independence of the, gu- uh, the central bank is absolutely uh, non-negotiable now. You know, the rights and wrongs of it, we could have discussed. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when it happened in 97, but I think. To reverse that would send again a bad signal. Again,
2: a terrible signal.
4: Exactly. So, so I think it's something that we have to live with.
2: But it does give them. It gives up, And we talked earlier about these huge organisations inside government and the power mm. that they have. And the Bank of England does have huge extraordinary power. power. Huge power. And with particularly with the age of quantitative easing, they that's effectively right. have given themselves a type of fiscal power because by affecting by affecting wealth, which you do that's with right. very low interest rates, you effectively you know change the fiscal environment, and that's yes. very uncomfortable that's in right. lots of ways.
4: And they're a hugely powerful organization. And again, like a lot of the, the quangos and the arm's length bodies I was talking to, uh, talking about. Um, again, there's no accountability. Um, Andrew Bailey, who I think has had a hard time, but he's, uh, you know, I, I always got on very well with him personally, and I think he's, you know, a thoughtful man. Mm. But, you know, he's, he's somebody you can't change. You can't change him. Uh, you certainly don't vote for him. And yet they wield a huge amount of power. And that's a feature of modern you know, advanced uh, capitalism, I suppose. One we just have to live with. I think so. I mean, unless you, I mean, you could go a full populist route and essentially, um, you know, have have sort of elections for, for people. Um, but again, people wouldn't want that. And it would create too much instability. Yeah. So I think the, the balance is to try and make sure that these people are accountable to parliament and to the executive. And that's something we could do more of. So. I mean, Andrew Bailey is now the governor of the Bank of England, but let's say he has a successor. I think that successor should be ratified by some sort of parliamentary committee. Mm. And I think Mm. they should be able, and they should have certain um, parameters, certain uh, targets, if you like, um, that they should be held accountable to. Um, And I think. Beyond just the 2%. Well, if not just the the 2% is one thing, but they're not even really held accountable for that because all they have to do is write a letter, which is, you know, I mean, that's all. But actually, it'd be quite good to have an annual session in parliament of a committee where they grill the governor on why these targets haven't been met. They're sort of approximating to that, but it's not formalized. And I think the only way that you can actually square this circle is actually having lots of open scrutiny of these people who, you know, let's face it, haven't been voted for, they're they're totally unaccountable from a democratic point of view, but they have to be able to answer for themselves in a public um arena.
2: Yeah, and they need to answer for the the long term effect of very low interest rates and what that. That's model right, and might then like it was suddenly. Done and then, you know, I mean,
4: I remember even when I was business secretary, I think the the interest rate, the bank rate we used to call it, was zero point one percent, and today it's five point two five percent. And that's only what two and a half years. Yeah. So it's gone up yeah. fifty times. Yeah. In which two years. Just
2: it was too low for too long before. <laughs> which would which, which exactly. And, and that, exactly. Has, that has consequences in all sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah, misallocation of capital. That's right. Businesses that's right. doing the wrong things for too long. That's for, right. For, as that uh, one of our guests put it the other day, low interest rates get into all the cracks. That's and right. Once they go up, you never know. And what's it's, and, happen. and also,
4: what we think because we live through this, you've got to. It's it's totally unprecedented. You mentioned my book, the the old the bank rate. Sort of you know two hundred years ago was was five percent for 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 eighty years, so there were people had whole lifetimes and whole careers where they had one interest rate um and 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 actually even the the five percent rate um it was only really in the last sort of forty years uh, that we've seen huge durations and ups and downs of it
2: now listen, do you think? That we will be saved from all these terrible things we've been talking about mm. by a great productivity boom brought on by AI. And when I've been speaking to people recently, what we talk about uh, we talk about the different things that could happen. We could have a roaring twenties driven by sure. huge productivity gains. Uh, we could have another 1970s driven by you know relentlessly fluctuating inflation because we haven't got, quite got it right. Or we could be moving into a, a sort of late 1990s in the markets where we see a sort of slightly pointless melt up.
4: So I think. Um, The the problem in terms of the roaring 20s and huge economic growth, there's too much geopolitical uncertainty. Mm. I mean, if you look at you know, our fight against inflation, everything looked as if it was going in the right direction. And then, of course, we had this Hamas incident uh, in October, the 7th of October. And that's really changed quite a bit. I mean, I was talking just a few days ago to um, people who are shippers in my constituency. They do logistics, they ship things all around the world. And they're talking about the Red Sea in a way that we haven't been talking about the Red Sea for quite a while and the houthi's and the attacks and all of that could have huge implications effects on cost of shipping and of course the cost of shipping will have a knock on effect on inflation cost mm-hmm. of imports
2: and all this could eventually affect the cost of uh, oil as well Exactly so see right. that coming through
4: so so i think the geopolitical climate is such that it would it's difficult to see a really booming you know next 2 or 3 years
2: right. and also suggests that we might see a sharp rise in defense spending
4: Exactly right. Which is right. also inflationary, because exactly war is always right. inflationary. So, so, so the geopolitical um, uncertainty, I think, argues against a, a sort of benign, roaring 20s uh, prediction.
2: And also suggests that interest rates won't be coming down quite as fast exactly as everyone believes. Right. believed. Infl-
4: all of, so all of those knock-in effects mm. mean, mm. I'm afraid, that uh, the, 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 the economic outlook perhaps isn't as bright as it seemed. Yeah. You know, a few months ago,
2: that was I trying to get you onto something
4: optimistic. Let's. <laughs> well, I, look. So I think, in terms of the, the to, to argue against that, yeah, I think AI is exciting. I think quite a lot of um, some of the sort of green energy stuff, there might be something to that. Um, I think we should be investing a lot in small, uh, you know, modular reactors. Definitely. Um, and I think I think there there, there are there are elements when I look at the economy which can provide growth. But we are
2: going to invest in modular reactors. Well, I hope you? so. I mean, be- I
4: mean, I was very keen to when I was in government. I'm not in government anymore, yeah. but I think that's what we're going to do. And I think if Labour come in, that th- th- they, they will need a growth plan. And I think the growth plan will hang on yeah. a lot of sort of green investment.
2: Um, can I ask you about UK stock markets? Mm. I mean, one of the things, again, we talk about relentlessly on this podcast sure. is how incredibly irritating it is that UK equities, and particularly small and mid-cap equities, are so cheap and down at the lower end. Liquidity mm. is so low and foreign investors will not come into our markets and our own pension funds can't get out of our markets fast enough.
4: Yeah, it's um, too lumpy and everything. I mean, a lot of that's to do with regulation.
2: A lot of it's to do with regulation. Um, so that could be a, a, another thing where we may that's see That's right. And that's what we were surprise. trying. I mean,
4: Jeremy sort of the Edinburgh reforms, but they, yeah. they didn't really sort of catch well, on. quite the enough.
2: It. They didn't provide the catalyst. No, so no. could it be something like, I mean, maybe 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 the UK stock market is just dead. I don't believe it is. I mean, I think there's a lot going on here. But something like, for example, uh, removing stamp duty on the trading of UK equities, right. because our stamp duty is incredibly high relative right. to almost everybody else's. Most developed countries I think don't you've got to even it. have a transaction tax. I think it's only Ireland that is that is higher than us. That's right. Uh, so that seems like a big barrier. Um
4: and I think, so there are, there are a couple of things here. I think, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think a lot of it is to do with, well, what's coming next. Yeah. So for the last year, pretty much, uh, Labour have been clear favourites to win the general election. And I think a lot of people are worried about. Uh, the effects of a Labour government, which is going to raise even more taxes. Mm. Although
2: to be fair, this discount has been there since the 2016. Discount has, the so. discount
4: has been there before, but there, are, there, it's 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 made of different elements. So I still think that that's still a bit of an overhang. Um, but I, and I think immediately after 2016 until relatively recently, the regulation. I mean, you know, we kept saying, "Oh, we're going to get rid of solvency two. We're going to yeah. liberalise. Yeah. We just didn't they do didn't it. We Didn't do those things. Um, and we should have done those things much sooner. Um, than, than we have done, or mm-hmm. that we've tried to. And again, you're dealing with vested interests. You're dealing with, you know, regulators who have a lot of power, particularly post 2008. Yeah. I find
2: it very, very hard to cut any regulation because then, of course, they will feel right. culpable where any, were anything That's to right. go wrong. That's
4: right. So the so 2008 really, you know, we're living with the after effects of that. Uh, we empowered regulators. I think regulation in in certainly the context of the London Stock Exchange is. Really stifling. Yes.
2: Well, companies always um, say they don't want to list because it's, it's absolutely. just too much. And anyone who's tried to read an annual report from any company will, will know and that. It's-
4: and lots of people on the private, you know, private equity specialists, but all, you know, private companies essentially are now avoiding, as you say. A public, uh, you know, public listing it used to be the aim. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to do yeah. an IPO and, and, we're and now we're seeing de-equitization.
2: We're seeing company after company right. after company that's taken right. off our markets. So yeah, and of they course they're trading at such a, such a discount now. That's right. That uh, anyone can come in and, and buy a, a UK company at a 40% discount and, and meander off.
4: That's right. So, so that's a bit of a, but, but, but the point of the political point, I fear I made about labor was that I think a lot of it is to do with when, when I was, Comparing listings in the in the US compared to the UK, people would well, you know, we can earn more money. We can. Uh, it's a more pro capitalist uh, society. Uh, people don't have the envy, and actually, we can be more successful if we yeah. list in in, yeah. in in New York as opposed to London.
2: Yeah. What about the idea of a Brit ISA that uh, comes up again and again and again? Well, you know, we have uh, this wonderful ISA yeah. structure. People can put their money in. It grows tax-free, free of capital gains, free of income tax, and then you can withdraw it at any time and without paying any extra tax. It's a fabulous wrapper, very supportive of it. But a lot of people will say, why should we be sponsoring people, uh, giving mm. them tax breaks in order to be able to go away and buy, buy buy shares listed outside of the UK? Why not just make that a UK-only tax wrapper?
4: So it's a very that's a very dare I say protectionist yeah. way of looking at things.
2: Might help though. I
4: th- it might do, but I think there are ways you could incentivize investment in the UK without doing that. I mean, that was one of the things that I wanted to do. The corporation tax, for example. Yeah. And everyone says, oh well twenty-five people say twenty-five percent is the average. We shouldn't be the average. We shouldn't we want to be average. Or it's quite you know, we else. want to be a, a beacon. And actually it's funny because I met the the one time I met the Irish president, um, he, 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 apropos of nothing, he suggested to me that, for him, the corporation tax, uh, the low corporation tax in Ireland had been a very successful policy. And that was demonstrated, as I said earlier, by the fact that it's been there for 25 years. Mm. And neither, party, neither of the parties, any of the parties that have gone into government have really argued against it. Yes. And I think that, you know, if Ireland could do it, there's a real opportunity, there would have been an opportunity for the UK to be able to attract capital um on that basis and then once you do that then it has knock on effects you know it become people come here uh, they invest here um and 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 then i think you create a culture where the stock market such as it is can 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 really power ahead and we haven't done that.
2: Yeah. And you could, always, you could also introduce things such as, you know, no corporation tax for the first two years of listing if you're below a certain size, All sorts there are of, of incentives. In and, and somehow we've just neglected
4: it. And actually, it. if I, you know, just to present a stylized fact when I was in Treasury and also when I was in business, it seemed to me that, you know, growing up, the two biggest, among the two biggest sources of productivity in the UK were the energy sector, which uh-huh. was oil and gas, let's face it, North Sea, and the financial services. And, you know, they've really struggled in the last, I'd say 10, 15 years, particularly since 2008, for lots of different reasons. I mean, you could argue that the net zero legislation has hampered, uh, oil and gas in the oil and gas industry. Well,
2: or it persuaded people to pull back from investing further in the kind yes, of things that might yes. improve productivity. But it
4: seems to me, if you, if you just, in, at its simplest, those two sectors, which, you know, had powered, uh, growth in the UK from, let's say, the mid 70s, right through, uh, to 10, to 2008, um, you know, they've they've had real challenges and mm. we need to get them back in, on a, in a better um, that's my view. That was yeah. that, and that was very much my view when I was uh, at the Treasury.
2: Yeah. Okay, let me ask you the most important question I ever ask anybody on this podcast, mm. and an answer is compulsory, by the way.
4: <laughs> wow. I know. <laughs> compulsory. I do not like compulsory, but <laughs> I'm a is, libertarian. Is, me too. This is compulsory. This is compulsory. <laughs> okay. Sometimes
2: libertarians have to do things they yeah. don't like. Okay. okay? If you were to only be able to invest in one thing for a ten-year period,
4: oh, that's and a very good question.
2: I'm going to, well, I, you, I could give you the choice of the whole world, and I'll do that if you'd like. Mm. But first, I'm only going to give you a choice of three things. Okay. A deposit account, interest bearing. Yeah. In the UK, sterling.
4: Yeah. Bitcoin. Mm. Or gold. I'd probably go for gold. Okay. I'd probably. The only problem with gold is that you only get the money when you sell it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, but as a store of wealth. Bitcoin. Yeah. You might not even get the money. That's true. That's true. I mean, it's much more volatile. And also, Bitcoin has been around 20 years and gold has been around that 2000 years. So uh, I would, I would probably, I would probably go for gold. And also, the actual, if I think about it, because my book is about, a lot about this, my War on Gold book, um, it's, it's a much better hedge against inflation than Bitcoin or certainly than a deposit account. Yeah. So if you think that there's enough geopolitical instability to keep inflation higher, your propensity, I think, to to go for a savings account is probably lower. Bitcoin, I think, is just a total crapshoot. You have no idea what well, what it's going to do. So gold, I think, is probably the best. in In an age of uns- of uns- geopolitical uncertainty, gold. I think um, gold is the best of those. Three. Yeah,
2: it's it's taught us over thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, that it's you, you know, it's pretty, 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 yeah, in yeah, times of right. instability. Yeah. All That's right, go right. back. You thought I was going to say over a 10-year period and you could only invest in one thing, what, was it, what would it be? Yeah, and I was, I, and I was, thinking, I was no.
4: thinking about <laughs> that. W- it wouldn't be gold. That wouldn't, if, it wouldn't if be if gold. If that
2: had been the question, <laughs> yeah, like, what yeah. would the answer be?
4: It's very tricky, that, because I think a lot of the sort of very hot, uh, you know, sexy uh, uh, industries have got a, a plethora of businesses and it's very difficult to know. So remember, when we're old enough, I mean, you're not, but I am. I think we <laughs> are. <laughs> <laughs> to... Uh, the 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 the, the dot com boom, and it was clear that you know people were going to make a lot of money, but it was very difficult to know which companies. I mean, in the end, you know, we had Facebook, which was a bit after that. We had Google, we had other Amazon, for example. But the whole host of different companies, and it would have been very difficult. It was difficult for people to know which of those were, were going to be successful in the long term. So you'd probably have to take a a basket, a portfolio. Yeah,
2: but you would t- would you take a diversified portfolio of equities over gold over the next decade? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank
4: you. Take care.
0: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe.
1: Mexico will likely have its first female president.
0: And then you have China.
2: So, John, there's lots to pull out of this conversation with Quasi. It was long and fairly wide ranging. Um, I found it interesting the way he believes. And actually, I kind of agree with him that a lot of the things that they wanted to do were perfectly valid. Uh, It was just done the wrong way around, i.e., deciding to announce all the tax cuts before talking about how they were going to try and slow spending and doing it all in about 25 minutes. Whereas, in fact, if it had been sort of more. Drawn out, it might have been fine. I mean, after all, guilt rates are basically right now where they were then, and mm. we're talking about cutting taxes now, despite the fact there's no no sign of spending coming off or anything like that. We're just so now is really no different to then. it's just feels slower and calmer, right?
3: Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think the fact that he nods to. You. It, it was clear whenever they came in that Liz Truss felt she had an artificial deadline, or, or there was some kind of deadline mm. in her head, talking yeah. about how she only had the two years. And then obviously, you know, the, the poor queen died, and that kind of took a chunk out of, you know, the, the first hundred days that every politician obsesses about. And so I think that sense of panic definitely led to them acting much faster and much more with a much more aggressive sound mm. than they maybe meant to. And of course he doesn't bring it up because, you know, he might take, you know, a flack for it. But there was also this small point that the pension system in this country was like heavily leveraged towards Gilts and so when yeah. they went when prices went down, as I've said lots of times before, the same as prices went down in US Treasuries and German bonds. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The difference is that we turned, we we got a leveraged doom loop because uh, defined benefit pension funds got margin called and had to keep selling gilts, and that's why the Bank of England had to step in. So again, I'll say I think that you know they they took they were very unlucky, and they could have got away with it. Yeah, um, they could have got away you know. with it.
2: And that would have been absolutely fascinating because then for mm. the first time in however long we would have actually had a government that were genuinely pro growth and trying to create real change. And it's, one of the things that I asked him in this conversation was if you were Rishi Sunak today, and of course it's difficult for, for him because he's still a serving MPs. So you can't expect yeah. him to uh. say anything too dramatic, but <laughs> you know, I had this, I have this idea in my head that Rishi Sunak could do something amazing if he was that kind of person, which I kind of suspect he's not. But, you know, he's got a very limited amount of time left as prime minister. I can't really argue with that, I don't think, at this point. Although, I mean, things turn around on a sixpence these days, so who knows. But, you know, he has a short period of time, still prime minister, has quite a lot of support from his party. He should. Mm-hmm. He could look at himself now and say, okay, I've got this bit of time. I have nothing to lose. I yeah. could right now put in place some of the huge reforms that are required in the UK that are Mm. long-term popular and short-term super unpopular and difficult and awkward and you know, full of of pressure groups all over the place, etc. Something like oh, I don't know, really having a go at the NHS, really actually yeah. working to to combine income tax and national insurance and giving us an honest tax system, yes. going for some right. genuine simplification, uh, finally yeah. doing something about the inconsistencies inside our, our welfare system. Although I know that good efforts have been made, but there's many more efforts still to be made. This kind of thing that there's, there's chance here. And I was trying to get Quasi to say, well, you know, the big one is, but obviously he couldn't, he couldn't quite go there. Couldn't quite go there. And I get that.
3: No, I mean, it's understandable. I mean, I like this um, analogy about the tax system being like a Christmas tree that yeah. uh, just accrued lots and lots of different bits of rubbish over the years. Um, mm. and Although, to go be fair,
2: I it. love a Christmas tree like that, so it didn't really work for me as an analogy. I was like, <laughs> that well, is true. That's why would point. you want to take yeah. any of that stuff off? More, more, more.
3: <laughs> Perhaps it's more like plaque. I think yeah. institutional plaque. Yeah, that's that's a, lot, I better. Think of it yeah. that's a lot better. <laughs> but I think the other um, interesting point is that I mean, you can see that he's, he's you know he is kind of instinctively libertarian because when when we were talking about the stock market and how to fix it affects it, I kind of mentioned the British ISA. He kind of made the point, which which I agree with in, in, in an ideological level that a, a kind of Brit ISA is mm-hmm. kind of nationalistic. But equally, his idea that oh, we should cut corporation tax to kind of Irish levels. Again, I like that idea, but I don't think that that would ever pass muster in the UK because even if Rishi did it as his, you know, I'm about to get kicked out the door. Here's a big change. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that Labour would reverse. Whereas at least that thing you said about you know merging NI and income tax. That's not something that Labour would reverse because it's actually a good idea. It's just politically toxic. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's the kind of thing definitely that, you know, they should be looking at doing now because you get nothing to lose. The future, you know, everyone will agree with you in reality. They just, nobody's got the guts to do it because no one will like it.
2: And the reason no one can do it, and particularly the Conservative Party can't do it, is because if you start doing that, then you effectively put it in tax for mm. um, retirees
3: yes and right.
2: that's the problem and then you have yes. to and then if you're if you're not going to put up income tax for older people because older people don't pay NI then you have to say explicitly explicitly we are going to charge young people younger people a higher rate of income tax than we are older people that's why you can't do it except for right now when you
3: could yeah good idea you <laughs> had for prime minister oh
2: Yeah, no, I'm not sure I could take the scrutiny. I mean, I'd be forever deleting my WhatsApp messages, right? And then how much trouble would I be in? Poor old Nicola Sturgeon, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to be her. So no, I'm I'm not really up for for senior government positions. Thanks very much. I've got
3: secrets. Just remember to expense your burner phones. It's the thing. It's like, what? I know. I know.
2: Anyway, not that this is not that kind of podcast. Not that no. kind of podcast. Now, look. Before we go, I want to come back to the our conversation we had at the beginning about annuities and um, and how to how to provide for your your retirement with your uh, leveraging the capital that you have. Now, Mark Dampier, who used to be at Hargreaves Landstand, he always used to mm. say that the UK equity market was effectively nature's annuity <laughs> because you got wonderful dividends. And, uh, you know, you might say, well, those dividends are not sustainable because uh, the cash is being used to pay dividends rather than to invest in businesses, etc. But, you know, nonetheless, that's what an annuity is, right? Mm -hmm. So the market is nature's annuity, which is a a wonderful thing if you have control over your own pension pot and you can invest it like that. So with that in mind, John, I've got a list here of the uh, highest paying investment trusts, the best of the nature's annuities there are out there. And I'm looking through them and it is fascinating, you know, and uh, Martin, I'm sorry it's too late for this, but for you, but nonetheless, for those of you which are not too late to, this list is really worth looking at. Oh, you can get, uh, let's see, we've got yields here of Aberdeen Equity Income Trust, 7.7%. I'm just looking at the UK ones, there's loads of non-UK, one, non-UK ones. Um, CT UK High Income, I don't know that trust actually, 6.4%. Linzel train. that's global, but nonetheless, 6 uh, lowland Investments Company which is UK Equity Income 5.2 we've spoken to them a few times haven't we and if you look down at all the other UK Equity uh, Funds UK Equity Income Funds cross come a little below JP Morgan, Claverhouse Schroeder Income Growth Merchant Trust City of London they're all offering yields of, of 5% um, not bad Yeah it's not
3: bad and also if we end up getting an uh, environment where interest rates do end up going lower or alternatively where inflation still comes back then you would expect them to be Um, of interest to people because Mm. they usually are invested in kind of value stocks and also and this is all if this is UK stuff then it's cheap anyway Mm. Mm. Um, so it feels like a a good uh, option
2: Mm. and obviously in terms of safety etc equities are not comparable with gilts but nonetheless it's something to look at if you're trying to create an income for yourself in retirement definitely Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset-Webb. It was produced by Sam Asadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Kwasi Quateng.
0: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world.